Travel Tales Podcast. My guest today, Paul Gilmartin. How are you, Paul? Mike, always a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, for those who don't know, uh, host of Dinner and a Movie on TBS, my network for oh. my <laughs> former network. Both our former and both our network. former networks. We're, we uh, our jobs ended right about the same time. You started much earlier, though. 16 years you were on, right? Yeah, started in 95, September of 95. Went off the air in September of uh, 2011, as wow. Jimmy Pardo would say, the year of our Lord. <laughs> and I was on for nine, and I thought that was a lifetime in this business. 16 is. is pretty incredible. It is. It is, uh, especially when the comedy is marginal. <laughs> <laughs> so you and I, we grew up uh, probably, I'm going to say, maybe Five, ten miles from each other? Yep. That's pretty That's pretty close. You were from Homewood or Flossmore? Homewood. Homewood, okay. Because, yeah. you know, I caddied at Flossmore Country Club. Yeah, I the remember. The first job I ever had. And how'd they treat you? Awful. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> that's how it's supposed to be at a country club, right? <laughs> I had to that's double the Jew factor at that, uh, <laughs> what? At that club. Uh, because Jeez. because there were no because you were Jewish? And yeah, there was, it was, I think there was one member. I mean, yeah. it was that old school. And his last name was actually Token. <laughs> <laughs> I had friends actually who uh, who golfed, you know, who belonged to. Oh, that. really? I didn't. I didn't make friends with them until I was in high school. Um, but uh, because you know, I grew up in Homewood, went to St. Joe's grade school, mm-hmm. and then went to the high school we shared with Flossmore. Flossmore was a very white collar, very wealthy. Yeah. And uh, Homewood was a little more blue collar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Homewood was where I I was from, but we got the benefit of sharing a high school with a wealthy. So we, uh, we envied you on everything. You had oh like, uh, you know, a, a racquetball pool. courts, <laughs> uh, a, a, a pool, soccer fields, uh, uh, indoor track, uh, ice skating rink. Yes. Uh, no, Crazy. No, uh, yeah. My school, I went to Creek Money and we just, uh, we had like, you had a Creek. <laughs> yeah, we had pretty much, <laughs> but we had none of that stuff. And I remember, uh, it summed it up. I was in the caddy shack. And uh, we were sitting there, and we were talking about next fall. We were gonna, you know, what classes we were taking. And me and my friend, who also went to Crete, were sitting there. Well, I got English. This, you know, this. Yeah. <laughs> two guys from Homewood Flossmore were sitting next to us. We overheard one of them go, "I'm taking satire." <laughs> and I went, "Satire." We looked at each other. Did he just say satire? <laughs> yeah, that was a class. He's taking satire. And they talked about working at, at a radio station that you had. I'm yeah. like, you had a radio station? Yeah, we, we're yeah. blown away. Yeah, blown we had away. computer. That's where I learned to do uh, to work with computers. Uh, my dad was an insurance executive um, for CNA Insurance downtown, and he told me when I was like a junior in, in high school, he said, you know, if you want if you want to get a, a good summer job, uh, I recommend taking some type of computer course because. You know, computers are are the future. Oh, they're taking off. They're taking off, and uh, <laughs> I, I'd highly recommend you take a, a some type of data processing or computer course. So it was like can, Basic or Cobol. I remember learning Cobol. that Cobol. Cobol. I remember that. So, and it was it was with punch cards. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so that <laughs> enabled me to get summer jobs for until I was able to become a uh, professional stand up comedian. Wow. Uh, so that was uh, that was one of the benefits of of being at home at Flossmore High School. But uh, I remember thinking, oh, you know what, I'm going to take a computer programming class as opposed to data processing. You know, after that, and they said, well, you know, it helps if you've had I think it was calculus or something like that. And I was and. Uh, and I was like, well, how, how hard can this be? Hard. Hard. <laughs> I remember the first day sitting in the class and the teacher's like, okay, we're going to start out super, super simple. You, everybody do this. And I remember everybody just went right down to their paper. scribble, And I just remember looking around going, I'm the only one that has no idea what is going on here. And these people were all in AP math. And right, this right, and right. That. And, yeah. and you've been in satire for three years. <laughs> 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 the uh so I know you had a you have a brother. Yes. So it was just the two of you, right? Yes. And and we had a cousin who uh, was raised by my family. Okay. Uh he quite a bit older than us. He was 13 years older than us, but uh he was uh he was a big part of our family too. And we met doing stand up probably about 20 years ago. And you yeah. always had great bits about your your parents. Mhm. But uh one of the favorite ones I remember you always be about your dad. Your dad did two things. He 
smoked and right and wrote checks and wrote checks. <laughs> That's pretty much his existence. <laughs> Were they uh, travelers? Did you? Did they ever pile you in a car? Were you they big? did. My dad actually traveled quite a bit for for a living, and um, he there there was this this um, field of insurance called reinsurance that he was one of the pioneers of, and I don't know if it was if he was the one that came up with the idea or if it was him and a, and a bunch of his um, peers. But the idea was so that an insurance company wouldn't get sunk in the event of a huge catastrophe. What they would do is they would they would spread the risk around among insurance companies. So um, you would share some of the premiums with other ones, but that way – my dad was a very, very conservative guy. Uh-huh. And uh, – so he would travel to Switzerland and Japan and all these other places, and and uh, I would – like when my brother and I were collecting beer cans, we had the greatest <laughs> beer can collection in the oh, world because yeah. <laughs> dad would come back from England with tenants beer cans, yeah, yeah, yeah. come back with Japanese beer cans. He'd come back from Switzerland <laughs> with chocolates before there was good chocolate in the United States when Hershey's was the only chocolate right, right, to right. speak of. So he would come back with these Swiss truffles, and I mean it was it was pretty – it was pretty uh, – it was pretty cool. Could he ever take you on any of these things? Or uh, I don't think so. I think that's when Dad liked to do a lot of his drinking. Uh, uh, he was a binge drinker. So every once in a while, he would take my mom. But no, he never uh, – I don't recall him ever taking us on uh, and any of these trips. But, you know, he would have been busy uh, – working right anyway were you a summer vacation kind of family a little bit a little bit not not a whole lot um i i think maybe seven or eight times we went went someplace in the summer uh the first place i remember uh and i have really fond memories of it was um uh, uh atlantic city oh really yeah and um, this was like i'm sorry not atlantic city um oh god what is it it's it's a beach in New Jersey or Maryland. Um, oh, um, not, not Rehoboth Beach, Virginia City. No, Asbury Park. No, it's Long Beach Island, the Jersey Shore. God, what is the name of it? Monte Carlo. I, it's like the first pictures I, I I have of my family ever vacationing, and I'm totally blanking on the uh, the name of it. But, Good story. <laughs> fantastic story. <laughs> But I've always, you always, always been uh, – yes, we drove. Always been drawn to uh, the ocean. Just always been Me fa- too. fascinated by it and just loved it. Just absolutely loved it. I think it's a part of us, having grown up a 1,000 miles from the nearest ocean, Yeah, I never got tired of it. Yes. We would go to the East Coast, and one time we went to California as kids. Like We yes. did that Griswold Drive yes. out to uh, California, and just to me – they always had to pull me out of the ocean. We would go to South Carolina a lot, yeah. drive. Yeah. And, uh, man, that was – and I knew I was going to live near one. Yeah. Did you consciously think that as a kid too? Yeah, especially because I was a skateboarder and – Yeah, me too. Yeah, and it, there, there was no skateboard parks. Everything was flat, and you'd read these skateboard magazines – and you'd see the guys going down hills, skating in yeah, skateboard they all lived parks. In Venice. Yeah, when they weren't busy surfing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was just California was my my dream. And I had a relative, uh, the woman that raised my mom, uh, lived in San Diego, and so she was like a grandmother to me. And I I would uh, uh, sometimes come visit her, and that was uh, that was really really exciting. Well, your parents were they pretty good about you taking trips somewhere, whether with other kids or other families, or with the school or something like that? Not particularly. Good with signing the release. <laughs> um, I, I remember there was a ski club in high school uh, that uh, I went on. In high school, yeah, I started to to go on ski trips with kids, and that that was really really liberating. That was mm-hmm. like, oh my god, that feeling of getting on that bus or the plane or wherever. Was this the just, acid trip? Yes, that was one of them. <laughs> okay, I heard this. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back podcast. to your podcast. Yeah. Bit, okay, I'll mention that a little later. But it's a great. Paul hosts the mental uh, mental illness happy hour, mm-hmm. mentalpod.com, Right? Yes. Big fan. Thanks. It's an amazing show. Thanks. I love listening to it. Thanks, Mike. But you were. Uh, you tripped on acid going to Wisconsin. Yes, when I was uh, 16 years old. and What better time in a contained bus <laughs> with chaperones for your first acid trip? For, yeah, to experiment <laughs> with no place to go. And it was not a good trip. It was not a good trip. Um, I came really close, I, I think, to losing, losing my mind. And uh, it was... Uh, 
Were you going up to like Baraboo or something like no, that? No, we were going to uh, uh, White Cap. White Cap? Is that what it's called? Yeah, White Cap. That must be way up there. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. It's almost like a, Iron almost, Mountain up there? Yes. Okay, yeah, very, gotcha. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it was a really, really fun place to go skiing. And it was cool, too, because they didn't card you at the little uh, hut. So you could uh, drink drink that beer. Was, so when you're 16, because I think the drinking age was 18. It was, it was 18 point. in Wisconsin. I remember senior year of high school, me and my friends, there's like four of us. I don't know. It was like middle of February, and somehow we convinced our parents to let us out early. My friend, uh, the other caddy, who uh, heard the satire thing, mm-hmm. he, uh, he got the caddy scholarship, uh, the Evans scholarship to Northwestern. Mm-hmm. So he was going up for a, an interview on a Friday afternoon. So we all went up with him. He did his interview, and then we drove to like Baraboo to the sure. Dells. And I remember we were here. We Devil's are head, Devil's Head, right? Devil's Head. Yeah, sixteen seven. I don't know how we got a hotel room, but somehow yeah. we got a hotel room. Yeah, and uh, we went out for pizza, and we had to get the balls up to to ask for a beer, like for a pitcher right. of beer. Right, and then they served us, and to us that was the most amazing oh, yeah. thing. We're yeah. adults. Yeah, this waitress just this grown up yes. waitress bought us brought us a yeah. beer. Yeah, we were like Wisconsin is the greatest place in the, the world. The greatest, the greatest. <laughs> yeah, it, it would be like a, like a gorgeous woman coming up to you and saying, "Would you like me to take all my clothes off for you?" <laughs> yes. <laughs> we asked her for beer and she brought it. Yeah, and didn't even ask. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. great. And I looked like I was twelve years old. That's <laughs> what was the most amazing thing to me is getting served. I looked like when I was sixteen years old. I looked like a twelve year old girl. <laughs> I wish I was lying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sad. Sad. But uh, you paint a nice of, picture. You yeah, paint a nice picture. I do. I do. Who wouldn't need to drop acid? <laughs> <laughs> so you took these trips yeah. through high school. Mm-hmm. When was your first trip overseas to another country? Uh, I believe the, the first trip was uh, I'd just gotten out of college. Uh, and my parents, my, my grandmother was getting up there in age. She was in her 80s. She was from the French part of Maine. And her dream was always to, to go to uh, France. There's a French part of Maine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she didn't oh, even speak that. English until she was, uh, because it's on the border oh, of Quebec. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, she didn't even speak English until she was like seven years old. Wow. Um, and so my parents paid for my brother and I to take my uh, grandmother to Europe. It was uh, 1987. Uh, so I would have been, what, 24 years old. And uh, parts of it were really cool. Parts of it were really stressful and draining. Uh, my, because my, of your grand, my, my brothers, grand- my brothers wound pretty pretty tight, and um, or at least he was then, and wants to do a hundred things. Right. And I want to do two things and take a nap. And and <laughs> I, I become easily overwhelmed. So sometimes traveling with somebody. Who, well, that just heightens everything. You're with them yeah. 24 hours a day. Yeah. And if they get any little ticks by yeah. after the first week, you're you're on each other. Yeah, yeah. So how long was that trip? Uh, it was, I want to say it was two weeks. It, we, we first went to, um, I think we went to England. In fact, my brother might have, I think my brother was living in England at the time. So my grandmother and I flew to England. We spent a little bit of time there. Then we flew to uh, Paris and we hung out in Paris for like a week and then my, and then we went to Switzerland and then my brother went back to London and my grandmother and I went to Italy by ourselves, went to Florence. Uh, so it would, it would have been, uh, London, Paris, um, uh, Zurich and, and Florence. And a nice little trip. It was a nice trip. It, it, it in, in a lot of ways, I, the thing I remember the most coming back home was realizing America is not as popular as I think it is. <laughs> and I really appreciate the things that I take for granted here. Uh, just being able to get on a, a train and know where I'm going without having to ask directions. Uh, it just, it really made me appreciate uh, where I lived and the conveniences that we, that we have in this country. But it was also really cool seeing Versailles, uh, you right. know, seeing these the, things you've heard about forever. Thing, yes, uh, Florence is one of my favorite cities in the world. I've, I've since went back there because we taped some episodes of Dinner and a Movie there uh, oh, in '07, and uh, it's you forget how soothing it is to be in a city that doesn't have billboards. Yes, I had, that really hit me. I went to Havana, yeah, this March, and and people asked me what was it like there in Cuba, and I said one of the really things one of the things that really stood out 
was there was no advertising anywhere. Yeah. The only billboards you would see were all government propaganda, but even then you didn't see that many of them. Right. They're just – it was shocking. Even store signs, you know. It, it, we just take it as part of our landscape here and just take it all – oh, yeah. We're going to just – this clutter, this visual clutter It everywhere. really is. It, it really is. And it, and it, it – I don't know that – it degrades your life more than you think it does. Right, right, right. And, you know, as a guy who, uh, we, who's been cooking in front of us for 16 years, yeah. we've enjoyed. If you like food like you do, what better place in the world than Italy? Yeah. You're going to go there and did I, you eat like an asshole? Uh, as, my, ironically, as our friend Pat Francis likes to say. Ironically, some of the worst Italian food I've had was in Florence. You're some kidding. of the best I had, but there are some tourist traps that are oh, yeah. awful. Uh, and you're traveling with Claude. With Claude, yeah. A chef. A chef. And uh, so it was really hit or miss. But he didn't really necessarily have any contacts for great places to okay. go there. Um, but there was a place that we went. Uh, I want to say it was called Il Magazzino or something like that. Uh, it was near the Pitti Palace in Florence. And... They had this dish that I will probably think about for the rest of my life, and it was so simple. It was just deep-fried bread, and then you dipped it in creamy buffalo mozzarella. It was an appetizer. Mm. That and the pistachio risotto were oh. just, oh, my God. It was That oh, that was worth the, the, the trip alone. We got to see some really cool things in um, – in Florence, uh, we taped at a, uh, a chateau up in the hills of Tuscany. So we had this amazing, oh. this amazing view. The crew was really, really cool. Um, oh, we also went to, to Venice on that trip, and I was not a fan of Venice. I found it to be incredibly overpriced. Yeah, and it was and not a, much to do there. Not much to do if you are into buying shiny, breakable, <laughs> expensive shit. It is your city. At, once you get past the novelty of the streets are made of water uh and that it's really old it i don't know there there's something about it that just uh it's very very photogenic and that part i love taking pictures and and stuff like that but um i got food poisoning there the the last day that we were second to last day we were there we were uh, of course making a dish where we're making seafood and I had accidentally touched some seafood that had been on the ground. I picked. I got tired of people stepping on this piece of seafood that had fallen on the ground, so I picked it up <laughs> and, and ate it and, and immediately. And immediately <laughs> made sushi. <laughs> Threw it out. Was heading to go wash my hands, and they said, "Okay, we're ready to roll." I was like, "Okay." After this take, I'll go wash my hands. Cut to we're eating seafood at dinner oh. with our fingers, and I realized I forgot to wash my hands. <laughs> that night, we had the most amazing experience. We. Uh, St. Mark's Square in Venice, uh, they are doing a uh, salute to the music of uh, Ennio Mar- Morricone, mm-hmm. who did all the the westerns. The westerns. He, I mean, you name it. This guy has the greatest Italian score of films and et cetera, et cetera. Amazing concert. They've got a choir there. I get back to my hotel room and I begin. Shitting and puking for 24 straight hours. I can't even stand up. So they have to shoot the last episode uh, without me. Claude and Janet have to do it by themselves. I can't, I can't even get out of bed. I had to order uh, room service and a bowl of soup and two Gatorades with tip, $75. <laughs> so not a big fan of Venice. <laughs> Venice, I always if when people go to Italy and they like to do that triangle of Rome, Florence, and Venice. Yeah, yeah. I always say if you're going to cut one out, cut out Venice. Venice. Yeah, yeah, it's like Vegas, like two days. You're in, you're out. You've seen it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think 24 hours at the most. 48. Take hours. your photos, ride a gondola, and yeah. you're done. That that would that would be enough. And the crew, <laughs> our, our crew was from Rome, and they just kept telling us you have to come to Rome. You have to come to Rome. But we, I like Rome a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you would love it. Yeah, yeah. What yeah. what what about it? It's bigger. It's just a uh, just a more cosmopolitan city, and just tons to do. I think you know better restaurants probably, and it's not just so touristy and overpriced, like you said. I mean, right. there's, it's a real city. People are yeah. there. Where, you get this feeling in Venice. It's but, almost like a movie set, and no one there yes. is really nobody living. lives there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, nobody right. nobody that makes an average income 
lives there. They live on a surrounding island and come to work, and that's when you're <laughs> yeah. going to get fucked as a tourist is when they have you trapped. So, you know, like food on an airplane. Yeah, exactly. The quality is not going to be great, and the price is going to be awful because you have no other options. So this trip with your your brother and your grandmother, yeah. your first trip overseas, yeah. did that like trigger something in you and go, I got I to gotta expand. I got to get out a little more and... I, no, the thought that occurred to me was I want to see everything I can in the United States before I go through the hassle of traveling overseas. Again. Okay, so yeah. stand-up helped that a lot. I mean, it helped it me did. see the country. I went to corners of the country, and I know you did too, that I never would have seen. Yeah, and you see it in a way that's really intimate because what people laugh at in a comedy club tells you a lot about what they laugh at and more specifically what they don't laugh at, what they're offended by, tells you a lot about that city. Um I always had like like uh, you know in Chicago we know everybody's Catholic yeah. you know between the Irish the Mexicans and the Polish every, everybody's Catholic yeah. and uh, so everybody had like Catholic jokes and then I had you know Jewish jokes yeah. but I knew if it, I would float uh, like a Catholic joke out there and if that got no response then the Jewish thing forget about it because yeah. if they don't even know any Catholics yeah yeah Jews forget about it. <laughs> it's not that's not gonna fly yeah. Yeah. But I remember I was talking with uh, Jimmy Pardo about this, and at least what I seem to find in audiences, because people would always ask us, do you think you, know, you go down south, is it different audiences than up north? And I think it's more city and small town. That's exactly. The, that's exactly. the difference. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. I would, I would completely agree. Because you could do a one-nighter an hour outside Chicago that would be way more hickish mm-hmm. than performing in Atlanta. Right, right, right. Absolutely. So you saw the country. Did Where in the United States did you really want to go? Uh, one of my favorite trips was uh, around uh, 99, 2000. I, I began to get uh, really intrigued by stories of people mountain climbing, especially people like trapped on top of mountains and, and surviving and Everest stories. And, and, and stuff, like that. stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And uh, John Krakauer had this series of uh, compilation books that were compilations of survival stories called the uh, Adrenaline series that, that I just couldn't get enough of. And I was like, what is this all about? And I thought, you know what, maybe I, I, I need to get do some mountain climbing or something. <laughs> so I, I, um, I couldn't find anybody to do it with me. So I just signed up for this course at the American Alpine Institute in Bellingham, Washington. Um, I went online and they seemed to be highly recommended. And, uh, so I signed up for a 10 day glacier mountaineering. I literally had no backpacking experience. <laughs> so the first course I took was just how to basically backpack. And then immediately after it was crevasse rescue and glacier climbing. You're doing the crampons and the ice picks yes, and the exactly, whole thing. Exactly. And so it was, uh, Mount, you would climb, uh, was it Mount Hood, uh, Mount there? Baker. Mount, uh, Baker. Mount Hood is, is, uh, in Oregon, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, Mount Baker is almost at the Canadian border in, in Washington state. And, uh, and so you establish base camp, and for five days, you're learning all the techniques that you need to climb glaciers. You're on a glacier, and you uh, it's beautiful. It's, you're above the tree line, so there's no wildlife up there to, to speak of. So when there's no wind, it is pure silence. And right. something physically changes in you when you experience pure silence, especially when you're out in, in nature. Uh, it was just the most amazing experience. It was also tempered by the fact that on the way up there, so I did some kind of nerve damage to my wrists. I, I don't know if I had too much weight in my backpack and I compressed a disc or something, but to tie my shoes was incredibly painful. So I've got to take this seven-day course where I can barely use my hands, and it's all about using your hands and tying ropes oh, and no. climbing, you know. Up. What temperatures are we talking? How cold was it? Uh, 45 and rainy. Ugh. Uh, it, there was a day that we were out on a, on a glacier and it just was cold rain for eight hours. And, you know, my wrists hurt. But there was something that was still so uplifting about pushing myself in. It was physically the most demanding thing I'd ever done in my life. I remember on the, on the hike to base camp, it was about a four or five hour hike and I had packed too much stuff. So I probably had about, I don't know, 65, 70 pound backpack on. And I remember 
a half hour into the hike thinking, I'm never going to make this. It, it felt like somebody was every, with every step, somebody was stabbing my hip with a screwdriver. Oh. And so I was like, I, I can either turn around um, and somebody's going to have to drive me back uh, and this thing's over, or I can try to find a place in my mind where the pain isn't so bad and just try to focus on other things. And I was able to do that. And I learned a really great life lesson that what you decide to focus on uh, has a lot to do with how much you can overcome. Uh, Marathons are like this too. When I ran a marathon, I did the same thing. Yeah. You know, you start off, I remember the first few weeks of training, I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm going to do this. And, but yeah, the mind is a really, well, you know, you deal in the mind all the time and and on your show and everything else. But yeah, it's, it's amount of focus and it's amazing what your body can do if you will it. It, it is completely amazing, and you just break it down to, I'm going to move my right foot forward. Mm-hmm. I'm going to move my left foot forward. And there's a certain peace that comes over you when you find yourself doing something that you didn't think that you, that you could do. Um, it, was, it was so beautiful in a, in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, the trip ends with summiting Mount Baker, and you get up at midnight uh, to begin climbing because the most dangerous time on a mountain is when the sun is out and it's warm, the snow. Oh, right. so you want to minimize the amount of time that you're in the dangerous areas when the, when the sun, so you get up at midnight and so basically you're, you hike for about seven hours to the summit and you know, you're, as the sun is, is coming up, you're at the summit and then you hike back down. So it's about, it's about you know, 12 hours of really, really, uh, tiring hiking the, the the nice part is is for the summit you don't have to carry all your stuff you've just got a little summit right. back so it's not that 60 60 pound thing but what's the elevation of the summit uh, it's not that it's not that big as uh like ten thousand something okay. um you but wuss. you're but you're in a you're in a <laughs> glacier field which is just like one of the things you learn when you're doing crevasse rescue is you you tie to another guy and one of you jumps into this hundred foot crevasse and the other guy gets pulled off his feet and has to dig his ice axe in and then set up a series of belays and pulleys to pull the other person up. Now that second person is tied to a rope in case everything goes wrong. So you both don't get dragged to your death. But I was the first person who would stand on the edge of this hundred foot crevasse and jump in you had to jump in jump in and hope that the pulleys and everything that was oh. set up that i wouldn't be falling to my death <laughs> so needless to say it caught me and so you're sitting in this crevasse and they've they've told you the history of you know this the basically glaciers are when snow accumulates more faster than it can melt that's how glaciers are formed and the weight of the new snow compresses and it makes this special ice that is really deep blue. So they told you when you're hanging down on this rope, you are looking at compressed snowfall from the Civil War or earlier. Wow. And so you're sitting there in this beautifully quiet, looking at all this blue ice. You're just dangling from a rope? You're just dangling, trusting your fellow human beings. And it's this, I don't know, it's it's hard to describe, but it's it's just it's difficult and awful and uncomfortable and beautiful and fantastic and exciting all at the same time. And it's like it's like all of life's emotions crammed into one experience. Now, the acid might have been interesting there. <laughs> oh, my God. I couldn't think of anything <laughs> anything more horrifying. Anything more so horrifying. So did you leave that experience going, okay, now I want to climb all these mountains in the world? Or are you you're just like, no, I'm good with that? Oh, we did it? I, I, kind of both. Uh, I... Th- I wanted I knew it was something I wanted to continue doing but I didn't want to experience that um that pain again. Uh one thing I did do after that was I I wanted to do um backcountry skiing in the in the winter and camping. So I hired a guide because again, I couldn't find anybody to go do it with me. <laughs> so I hired a guide and we did a, a backcountry traverse in the winter from uh, Mammoth uh, to June Lake. So it was like three days of, you got your tent, you got all your stuff and you're on cross country skis. You're yes. They're called randonnée skis, which are 
they, they were just invented like, I don't know, like maybe 12, 15 years ago. And what they are is the binding, the, the heel can come loose so that you can cross country ski when you want to. And then it can lock down so that when you're at the summit, then you, you can downhill. ski like downhill. Oh, okay. And they have these things called skins that you adhere to the bottom of them that are like a cat's fur so that it allows you to slide forward but not slide back as, oh, okay. e- as easily. So you put this you, the skins on on the way up. Your heels are free. You you go up the mountain. When you get to the top, you peel the skins off. You lock your heels down, and then you, you skin down. Wow. Um, and it was incredibly... Uh, difficult because the guy I was with had just done, had just done, competed like in a nation, nationwide thing for speed of doing this. So I'm trying and to. And you're keep, slowing him down. I'm slowing him down. <laughs> I've got health problems at this point that I don't even realize that, that, that I'm being deprived of oxygen because I'm anemic. Oh. So I'm trying to keep up with this guy. Um, but still, it was, it was really, really cool. The, the solitude of backcountry camping in the winter is so pure because there's no wildlife. Um, yeah, there's, there's always something. I just remember when I'm ever in the mountains or the country like that, you talked about the silence yeah. all the time. That, having lived in cities my whole life, the silence is the one thing that really stands out, and the other is the darkness. Yeah. Like not being able to see your hand in your face yeah. dark but being able to see the stars and then you well, look up and there's more stars that you that you've yes. ever seen in your life yeah i had a friend who lived at about ten thousand feet in colorado and i remember looking up one night and going oh my god like, i know it's no startling idea. yeah it really is it's it's amazing <laughs> so how long was this ski trip it was uh i think three three days and uh, the coolest part was coming out uh at the summit of uh june mountain which is a, a ski resort near mammoth and you come out at the at the summit of the ski resort and there are people getting off this chairlift and here you are like, you know, grizzly <laughs> Adams with the 60 pound pack, you come underneath the ropes and now you're able to ski down this ski resort for free because oh. you are basically earned your steps to the, to the That's top awesome. of this thing. It was cool. It's really hard skiing with the 60 pound pack on though. Cause oh, you start yeah. moving the wrong way and it just pulls you completely off, uh, you know, off balance. And then you getting up can be its own, you know, but it was it was so uh, it was so rewarding. Uh, and then the other thing we did was uh, on a separate trip was we um, I, I learned how to climb frozen waterfalls, which uh, was really cool. At Yosemite, there's this place called Chenard Falls, and uh, that was really really cool. And actually, the most dangerous part about climbing frozen waterfalls the falling is not the guy <laughs> climbing. It's the guy underneath the guy climbing, belaying him, because as the guy climbing is swinging his axe, chunks of ice are coming loose, and the guy underneath is getting hit by all these things. Has to dodge these chunks of ice coming at him. Oh, uh, but again, frightening, physically difficult, but so cool and so <laughs> life affirming. A lot of these things are things that I will never do again. I just wanted to experience them once. I'm, I'm probably physically. At, at an age now where it's just, uh, I would rather car camp, but, <laughs> right. but, but I'm really glad I, I, I did them. No, that's amazing. So you were sober now. Mm-hmm. Um, it had been for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, eight years. Were there any stories uh, overseas or anything under influences of any uh, kind of, you've been well, to Amsterdam, I'm sure? No, haven't been. Really? To, always wanted In to. In your weed days, you never went to Amsterdam? Always wanted to. I don't know why I never, <laughs> I don't know why I never went. Um, I'm, I'm. Surprised that no that crossing borders holding uh, anything. No, never, uh, never did that. Probably the the most. I don't even know if the word scandalous would <laughs> would be right. But my, when my brother and I were in France, and it was completely legal, we weren't doing anything illegal. But you know, my grandmother was tired because it was a day of walking around Paris, and we were staying in uh, Place de Clichy, which I think is kind of the red light district near the Moulin Rouge and other places like that, and. I happened to see a flyer that said um, uh, a tour uh, at night of all the places like the Moulin Rouge and places like that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. my brother and I are like, well, that'll be fun. We'll go see, you know, the Go-Go Girls and all that. Uh, so the first place you go is the Moulin Rouge and, you know, they're a little topless mm-hmm. and a little saucy. <laughs> and the next place you go to is a little more, uh, you know, uh, a little more nudity. A little more strip clubbish. Yeah, yeah. The third place we go to, they don't even serve alcohol. 
And as we walk in, and, and it's me and my brother and maybe 10 couples in their 60s. Okay. The third place we go to, we're waiting in line to go into this theater, and there's glass cases with dildos and whips and chains. <laughs> and my brother and I look at each other like, what have we gotten ourselves into? <laughs> we walk into this little theater. The curtain comes up, and people are just fucking on stage. <laughs> And we're like, oh, my God. And it's funny because I looked around and all of the men in the audience, all the husbands are just staring straight ahead <laughs> like a lion <laughs> looking at a zebra. Right. And all the wives are looking at the stage, looking at their husbands, looking at the stage, looking around. <laughs> looking at the guide yes. to argue. Yeah. Uh, it's one act – after another, each one becoming kind of more increasingly uh, graphic. The, the, the final act – oh, I'm sorry. The first act was a woman masturbating. Okay. The, then the second act was this girl comes out, and she's got a a uh, ring through each labia. She's got two rings, one through each labia, and it's padlocked, <laughs> and she's masturbating. Okay. And – and she's looking, and she and she's she's really into it. So she's coming right up to well, she's the a men. professional, Paul. She, yes. you know, she knows how to perform. She's coming right up to the men in the first row and masturbating like two feet from their faces, <laughs> looking right in their eyes. And of course, the wives are just you know the, their head is just swiveling back and forth, looking around, and everybody is, I, you know, the, I suppose it's the comedian in me is just really enjoying looking around and seeing everybody's rest. <laughs> yeah. I'm also incredibly turned on because she was very attractive. She looked like Leah Thompson. She was right. very, very attractive and uh, kind of a girl next door <laughs> okay. uh, looking. and With a padlocked With labia. a padlocked uh, labia. <laughs> and so uh, I noticed that she's really getting off on everybody, everybody's reaction. And everybody, all the men are looking at her as if they're watching TV. Well, the comedian in me knows that when you're performing live, you are getting off on people's reaction to mm -hmm. you. As a comedian, we look at people's facial reactions right. when we're doing stand-up. We know and when I, people and, are into it. And, and I realize not. everybody is just looking at this woman slack judge. So when she comes over and her eyes meet me, I give her a big shit-eating grin because <laughs> I think what she's doing is – interesting and powerful and you say whatever Witty. say whatever you will about you know whether or not she's a damaged human being and the reasons why she's doing this i'm 24 years old and this is fucking exciting and i've got a heart on so so i give her this big shit in the ring she gets up and she walks over towards me and she starts and she puts her her vagina right in front of me with this padlock and she's holding the padlock and she's like saying something to me in French. And I'm like, I have, and she hands me the key. Oh. And I'm like, I don't know if she wants me to unlock it. And I just look around and I say, I don't speak French. I don't know what you want. And everybody kind of laughs. And she, she goes, somebody else unlocks. You didn't unlock it? No, I don't think I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. I don't think she had shown me the key yet. Maybe she was asking me to find the key or something, <laughs> but somehow a key was produced a moment right. later. I don't want to know where the key was hiding. It was unlocked. <laughs> Some guy came out on stage and they fucked and then the, cur oh, the, the curtain went down. And uh, I just remember going back to my uh, hotel, my brother and I just walking almost in complete silence. <laughs> home like what have what have we just seen and uh my grandmother was like oh so how was the trip <laughs> you know we were like it was fine it was fine and then i it's the moment they both went to bed i just remember going into the bathroom and masturbating furiously <laughs> that's a good one yeah that oh. is that is my outstanding memory of friends my other favorite moment um traveling around europe was the um, train trip through Switzerland, just going through the Alps. Gorgeous. You know, the Germanic countries, mm -hmm. they're organized, shit runs on time, it's clean. And, hilarious. Uh, hilarious. <laughs> oh. there, there is, 
that there is something really able to laugh at themselves. Those people. <laughs> there is something about uh, Switzerland that I just really uh, connected to, and my favorite, probably my favorite part of the trip was just uh, going through the Alps on a train ride yeah. and just soaking in the scenery. And uh, I, I don't know. There's something about that that I just really, really loved. I, I don't know if you're like me, just because. I'm sure this is part and parcel of growing up in a place where it's flat. Yeah. I'm still amazed in mountains. I love a view. I love a house with a view. Yeah. I love anything with a view. Yeah. Um, here, just driving around L.A., I, I just – I never take the mountains for granted. Yeah. You know, just because having grown up with nothing. Yeah. So look at just a flat landscape. I love – and maybe that's where climbing comes from. Yeah. I mean, looking at a mountain going, we're going to get to the top of that. Yeah. And especially when you earn the view. Yes. Yes, it's a great feeling. It. Yeah. So when you went to Switzerland, was this before or after the mountain climbing class? Oh, this is this is way before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> the mountain climbing was in '99, and this would have been in '87. Because now you can go back and tackle that mountain. <laughs> now you could just go back and just you know tear it up. Uh, yeah. If Bring I, it on, Switzerland. That's a come on, Alps, Matterhorn. Yeah, I would probably do the cable car <laughs> to a cabin at the at the top. There, there's something really to be said for for a car camping. Uh, I think my favorite thing to do is to go into the Sierra uh, Nevada mountains here locally, like near Bishop. There's a place called Big Rock Creek uh, State State Park that's uh, at about seven thousand feet, and you can you drive your car to the campsite, but you are in rugged really, really steep terrain, and there is a gushing uh, stream running right past your tent. Oh, beautiful. And really intense hiking right around there. So that's kind of my favorite because that way I don't have to slog the 65-pound pack, but I'm in the middle of really, really remote kind of rugged uh, uh, terrain. It's super scenic. And your Carla, your wife Carla, Carla Felicia, the... uh Writer, comedian, mm-hmm. very funny lady. She is uh, cool with camping. She's good about that. She's she, into it. She, yeah, yes, she's cool with car camping. She, we tried doing. Here's another uh, a camping story. We decided uh, when I was in the midst of uh, loving my my camping and stuff, I was like, I got to get her involved in this. But she's like, I don't want to do anything super rugged. So she discovered that there's this place, on, and we'd always wanted to go to Catalina Island, which is an island. Oh yeah, that yeah, is, yeah. Most people know off the coast of uh, uh, from Los Angeles about. You take the ferry from Long Beach, and it's like 45 40, minutes to 45 minute boat, or boat ride. Beautiful, rugged uh, island. A lot of buffalo, foxes, stuff like that. And uh, she found out that there is this beach at the north end of Catalina Island that is really remote. The only way to get to it is to be dropped off by a boat, which very few people did, or to hike seven miles into it. That being said, if you go during the week, they tell you nobody is going to be there. You're going to have the whole beach to yourself. So we're like, let's do this. Um, it's going to be a seven-mile hike, but it's flat. Okay. So we can do this. We get a minute into it, and she's like, my back is killing me. Take this, take that, take this, take that. <laughs> she, so basically for seven miles, I'm carrying an anvil. She's carrying a feather, and she's complaining about the feather. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, just suck you it up. in your story about the, uh, but no, will yourself. Yes. Come on, visualize. No, that's when, when somebody's not into it, it there's <laughs> yeah. no. So we eventually make our, our, our way there. Um, I realized that I had forgotten to get propane to cook with. Oh, I brought steaks. I brought, you know, other stuff. <laughs> There's nothing to cook with. So I basically, like Fred Flintstone, have to cook a steak on a stick <laughs> over a fire. She doesn't want anything to do with it. She's crabby. Her feet hurt. You know, I'm like, whatever. Let's just <laughs> let's just go to bed tomorrow morning because it's dark at this point. Tomorrow morning, we'll wake up. We'll have this whole place to ourselves. We'll have three days of just being completely on this beautiful stretch of uh, – it's like the piano. You know that movie, The, uh, the Piano? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that, that kind of a beach. Um, we, we lay down to go to, to sleep and I hear somebody going through our stuff. I get out of our tent and I see probably 15 pairs. I got my flashlight, 15 pairs of eyes scattering. Apparently the foxes had broken into my stuff and had gotten my antidepressants. They had taken my antidepressants. (laughs) 
So now I don't have any antidepressants. We wake, a lot of lazy foxes. A lot of lazy foxes. Week. Wake up in the morning to the sound of a hundred Boy Scouts in canoes landing to camp around us. <laughs> I like to say, the sad part is neither my wife nor I are pedophiles. <laughs> Completely wasted on us. We can't stand it for 15 minutes. When you needed your antidepressants the yes. most. We pack all our shit up. Her with her feather, me with my anvil. <laughs> we hike seven miles back and stay at a hotel. My feet have never, my feet didn't hurt that much from doing <laughs> the mountain climbing, the mountain climbing, my feet. It took about three days for my feet to, to feel better because I had everything. And, and so we just decided then no more, no more hiking in. We will car camp. And we actually, there was a place that we car camped, uh, South of San Francisco. That was fantastic. It's exactly what we needed. It's called Butano Creek state park. And you are in the densest canopy of redwoods you've ever seen it's kind of near um uh half moon bay where mavericks oh yeah 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 is, and you're about a mile inland and i can't recommend it enough little day hikes it's just it's beautiful and that that is the type of camping that we will do from now on do you find as you get older your wish to travel far away gets you you keep it more close do you not want to go as far anymore I think it's going to depend on what what it is that I want to see. You know, I'm kind of a furniture nut. I love mid-century modern stuff, especially Scandinavian furniture. And I, at some point in my life, would love to go uh, see Denmark, see the history mm -hmm. of the mid-century uh, great designers. Uh, my dream is, I'm sure it's probably not available, but I would love to tour a factory where some of that stuff was made and some of the furniture was hand-shaped. There, there was a way they made furniture back then that had to involve artisans shaping it. It just couldn't be done completely by a machine. And I'm fascinated as to how they could do that on a, on a large scale. And uh, I don't know if there's any type of history that exists in Denmark, but I would love to, to go there. And, no, I'm sure and there's something that. like that. Yeah. Is, have you been to any other continents besides Europe? Never been to Africa, never been to Australia. Um, I'd like to go to Japan at, at, at some point. Um, never been to... Uh, Never been to Asia. Uh, now, you host the – for people who don't know, you host the show, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Mm -hmm. And it deals with people and who've had addictions and their personality disorders and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And you talk about your own. Mm -hmm. Do you think – I was thinking about this on the way over because this is kind of like your thing. You're not a shrink, but you've met a number of them. Yes. <laughs> I've, I've worn a number of them out. My first shrink, Mike, uh, as I was as I was just telling her what was going on with me in our initial visit, I looked up and I caught her rolling her eyes. <laughs> I wish I was kidding. Rolling her eyes like, oh. wow, buddy, you are fucked up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think people who are really into traveling have some kind of uh, personality trait or something that happen at an early age that made them want to like have this wanderlust or something? I don't know. That's an interesting question. Um, I, I have I, my own theories. About yeah. This, what's your theory? I don't know. I think there's, there's something that, I mean, maybe a lack of commitment. I think a, a freedom is as addicting as anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, that's like, like, you could be addicted to that too and not <laughs> want to be tied down or something about being a rolling stone and, and you know, yeah, and and maybe there's something of always thinking that there's something better going on somewhere else. Yeah, that's probably. Uh, I know I'm definitely plagued with that feeling that that you know one of the introductions that I say on on the the podcast when I just say you know welcome to the mental illness happy hour an hour of honesty about all the battles in your heads from medically diagnosed conditions to everyday compulsive <laughs> negative thinking feelings of dissatisfaction disconnection and inadequacy and the vague sinking feeling that the world is passing you by and that i think sometimes is what drives us to want to to go mountain climbing or to to it feels like we're not taking a bite out of out of life that's there's something is going on uh, somewhere else that 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 we're missing, or maybe is that we need to escape from something. But so many people have that feeling that something else is going better 
they're missing out on something better happening somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I, I got comfort one time reading uh, an interview with Steve Case, the guy that founded AOL, and it was about that that meeting that they do, that annual meeting of all the big muckety mucks in the world in in Switzerland at Davos. Okay, you have to be yeah. invited. It costs three hundred grand. And Steve Case said, "I don't know why I come here every year." No matter where I am, I always feel like there's something more important going on in another meeting room. <laughs> and I thought, wow, it never ends. It never ends, the right. feeling that there's something better going on somewhere else. But I seem to feel like I have that feeling more when I'm in America. Like when I'm home, yes. I'm always worried about what am I missing. Yeah. But I think that's one of the things that draws me to travel probably most of all. Not most of all, but one of the big things is that I'm probably more present when I'm traveling, because I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm here I am. There's nowhere else I got to be. I'm exactly. here to want to be. You know? Yeah, you know, Warren Zevon uh, wrote a book before he died, and he and his wife got fed up with the music business in L.A. At, they went to at, Spain. At point, went to Spain, and he always says that that was the happiest two years of his life. They mm-hmm. just worked at this little restaurant uh, for food and uh, made friends. And I think there was something to be said for – how do you find a way in life to appreciate wherever you are at any given moment? You know, a friend mm-hmm. of mine likes to say, keep your head where your feet are, you know, and that's easier said than done. It's yeah. easier said than done. Because I, I do find myself when I'm traveling as like, oh, I'm in a new place. I'm here. Let's explore it. I'm happy to be here. Yes. Let's do that. Yeah. And that's a feeling I never get when I'm home. Yeah. Cause, and you feel like you're taking a bite out of life, like you're, like mm-hmm. you're, you're living life to the fullest. Because um, nothing is worse than that feeling that you're missing out, that you're, you're doing something wrong. Life is passing you by. You're missing opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, and the other thing that I think travelers have is I think they have a really intense curiosity. And uh, I think you have to to put up with going through the hassles of traveling because I hate the hassles of traveling. I like being someplace new, but right. uh, I mean the airports, uh, customs, and, and yeah. delayed flights, and you know, not and having the language barrier and all that. Yeah. Have you ever had any uh, frightening flights? I mean, one where you thought, "Oh my God, we're going to die." Uh, yeah, I, I, I had, an, uh, we were, we had to make an emergency landing in St. Louis for something. Uh, or we were landing in St. Louis. I can't remember what, but as we were starting to uh, land, we started to take off again. And I was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. This, and it I've was like inten- like really, really steeply uh, taking off again. And Yeah. <laughs> no lost bags. Uh, ever had that? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had, in fact, when I you- re- recorded my comedy album in 96 – uh, it was the week of New Year's at uh, the Funny Bone in South Bend, and this was when r- digital recording equipment was a lot more wieldy, yeah. uh, uh, unwieldy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was, you know, a big suitcase, hard shell filled with digital equipment and yeah. sensitive things, and it was padded, and it didn't show up. My luggage didn't show up, so I've got. You know, as you know, as a comedian, New Year's is one of the biggest money-making weeks yeah, as a stand-up comedian. Audiences expect a lot, and I've got this brand new equipment, and I'm trying to record an album, and it's gone for three days. And the airline said, "No, it's got to be. It's got. It has to be missing for." 72 hours before we'll do anything because I called them up. I was like, I don't have a toothbrush. I don't have a pair of pants. You know what? Well, sir, we can't reimburse you until it's missing for 72 hours. And I said, have you ever not brushed your teeth for 24 hours? Do you know what that's like? Sir, I'm sorry. There's nothing. My stuff shows up the day before New Year's Eve looking like a Mack truck. Hit, hit it. <laughs> Somehow the equipment still works. Um, I had to go to the mall and buy clothes. I sent them a nasty letter and they and they reimbursed me for my clothes and and stuff. But it eventually wound up, uh, you know, turning out. <laughs> the, the stuff was was you know I was able to record a show, but it was just so stressful. It's so stressful and just that feeling when you get lost in the bureaucracy that nobody, yeah. nobody gives a shit. <laughs> I was like to uh, ask the little list of questions. Your favorite city. For food. My favorite city for food. Boy, that's a good one. Um, San Francisco would be up there. Chicago would be up there. Um, Some of the restaurants in Florence. uh, It's funny because Florence would be favorite, least favorite 
uh, city for, for food. <laughs> it was so hit and miss. Um, I know I'm probably going to think of one afterwards, but, uh, just loved Florence. You know, I'm a, uh, an espresso snob uh. and even the worst espresso I, I got there was better than 90% of the espresso you'll get in the United States. Just uh, going into a drugstore, getting an espresso was amazing. They just, they know how to do coffee right over there. And gelato oh and the God. ice cream. Oh I finally God. had to, uh, every time I'm in Italy, we have to limit ourselves. Okay, only twice a day. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll have it after lunch and I'll have it after dinner. Yeah. There, and here I never eat ice cream. No. There were, there was a place on the, uh, what's, what's the river that runs through Florence? The, um, Oh, I forget the name of it, but uh, there was a gelato place right on it uh, near the Ponte Vecchio that uh, it, I turned to Janet, my co-host, as we were eating this gelato. And I, I, I said, this is like velvet. This is like somebody took the best chocolate you can make. And I, I was like, I want a shirt made out of this. It's so <laughs> – the texture, it was the most intensely chocolate, smooth, velvety thing I'd ever had in my life. And – and the weird thing was, is I was still kind of lactose intolerant at that point, and it didn't even bother me. Wow. And I had it every night. That's <laughs> so addicting. Yeah. And you probably never gained a pound in uh, Italy. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Isn't that amazing? You yeah. eat so much, and then yeah. nothing. Because well, well, we were walking around a ton, too. Right. But uh, And apparently you were shitting and puking <laughs> half the time. Yeah. I, so saved, it for, I saved it, saved it for, for, uh, for Venice. Um <laughs> Okay, how about your favorite city for nightlife? For nightlife? Um, New Orleans. That's a good call. Love and New, food, by the way. Love New Orleans. Yeah, that might also be my favorite city for, for food. Uh, the last dinner in a movie that we taped on the road was, uh, was last year, and we did it in New Orleans. And it was so much fun. And at first, I was before we left there, I was like, why... I, this is going to suck going to New Orleans. I'm married. Yeah. I don't drink. You're sober. And yeah, there's a lot hardest. of food that I can't eat. Why can't you eat it? Well, because I was still lactose intolerant oh. at that at, at that point. So you don't have a beignet? Uh, I just, I just, you know what? I took a lot of lactate and I just said the hell with it. And I, I had so much fun and ate such great food and saw such amazing music. Uh, we were... Because the crew was local, we found out all the great places, places to go to where the mm -hmm. locals went to, to hear oh, music. The best. And uh, it was just – it was so much fun. Plus, I also – we knew that dinner and a movie was coming to the end. That This was probably going to be close to the last year, if not the last year. So I was really trying to soak it in. Yeah. And, uh, and I love the people that I work with. And um, it, it was just – it was fantastic. It's funny because my last uh – trip for if walls could talk for hgtv we shot right outside new orleans we were yeah. in louisiana and i was flying out of there so i remember us finishing on like on a friday and i said well i don't know about you i'm i'm staying the weekend yeah and the girl i was seeing at the time i flew her out and uh we just spent the weekend but what better way to have a rap party <laughs> than in new orleans oh it's the best i mean it's and whenever people from other countries say they're coming to america what should we see I said, well, definitely you got to see New York and New Orleans is always because unfortunately I tell them Chicago. Yeah. But, but, uh, New Orleans is just one of those cities that is unique. Yeah. And so many cities in America are not unique. They're, yes. they're I, interchangeable. They're, you have no idea where you're at. It is the most uncorporate city in America. Yes. And I think that's what I like about it. That in San Francisco to me are, have a real kind of, at least for major, major cities, you know, you could say, yeah, there's other cities that are, are, you know, less corporate, but uh, like Portland is very kind of uncorporate uh, yeah. city in a lot of ways. Love Portland. But New Orleans, there is, I, I feel like in a lot of ways, the New Orleans is the soul of America, of what America really, what's best about America, mm -hmm. the, the uncorporate kind of cool, live for the moment, um, celebrate life. Yeah, that's when when all these disasters happen there. I go, why, why New why? Orleans? Yeah. Of all places. why not Branson, Missouri? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally, how do you think travel changes a person? And what do you say to people who don't travel much to tell them, no, you should really get out there? You, I would say that you you don't. You know, it's like trying to uh, explain. Uh, Describe color to a blind person. It's <laughs> it, it's almost impossible to do it. If they don't have the curiosity, 
that's where it doesn't yeah. matter what you say. The most you can't va- implant the curiosity yes. in people. I say, I say this a lot of times on the on the Mental Illness Happy Hour uh, podcast. The most some of the most important th- things that I have done in my life, probably the top ten things, have involved me walking through fear and getting outside my comfort zone. They've been the most rewarding things in the world. Your comfort zone can rob you of much of what is great about life because most human beings, our crystal ball is broken. We think we know how things are going to unfold and it can really keep you in a rut. But if you get out and you connect to people and you try new experiences um, and just give, give into the fact that it, maybe it's not going to be perfect. There is no perfect. You know, uh, <laughs> if you, if, if you can have a positive attitude about things, Almost everything becomes perfect, even in its fucked upness. <laughs> things can be things can be perfect, you know. Like that, when my wrists were hurting so badly that I couldn't even tie my shoes, and I'm stuck on a mountain, you know, for seven days. Well, I've got to change my attitude, or it's going to be a miserable seven days. So imagine if you take a great attitude to a great city. Imagine how much fun you're going you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Mike, where can people find you? Mentalpod? Mentalpod.com is the, is the website, uh, or you can go to iTunes and look for Mental Illness uh, Happy Hour. Pleasure as always. Dude, have fun on your trip. I'm jealous. Thank you. Come on along. Get out of your comfort zone, will you? <laughs> my comfort zone is tied to my bank account right now. <laughs> <laughs> you and me. I'll see you at the unemployment line. All right, buddy. All right. Stay. Traveling man.